Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and also to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we will be talking to Dr. Therese McAllister, who is the Community Resilience Group Leader and Program Manager in the Materials and Structural Systems Research Division of the Engineering Laboratory at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, also known as NIST. We're going to specifically talk about NIST Community Resilience Program, which is a really interesting topic. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony Fasano. I'm a licensed professional engineer who practiced as an engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineering Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers build their core or soft skills. And I'm your other host, Matt McArdle. I'm also a licensed engineer, a structural engineer practicing in California, and I got an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's in structural engineering from UC San Diego. I also host a new YouTube channel, Structural Engineering Life, to which I'm focused on promoting the structural engineering profession to engineering students and young professionals that aren't too familiar with the industry perspective. Through this podcast, Matt and I try to bring you information that can help you succeed in every episode. Now, before we jump into today's topic and conversation, which is a good one, I do just want to recognize a couple of organizations. First of all, our sponsor helps us to keep the show free, so please support them. And our sponsor for this episode is CSI. Computers and Structures, Inc. is recognized globally as the pioneering leader in software tools for structural and earthquake engineering. Software from CSI is used by thousands of engineering firms in over 160 countries for the design of major projects. CSI software is backed by more than four decades of research and development, making it the trusted choice of sophisticated design professionals everywhere. Listen up later in the show where I will tell you more about their great software packages and how they can help you. We also want to give a shout out to a very important organization, ASCE Structural Engineering Institute. SCI is a dynamic community of more than 30,000 members from around the world advancing and serving structural engineering while influencing change on broader issues that shape the entire civil engineering community. Gain technical, professional, and leadership experience by participating in your local SCI chapter or graduate student chapter at an SCI conference or through an SCI committee effort. Now, a few events coming up, the iconic Global Structures event in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, September 29th and 30th. The Structures Congress for next year will be April 5th to 8th, 2020 in St. Louis, Missouri. You can apply for a student or young professional scholarship by January 3rd. And the Electrical Transmission and Substation Structures Conference will be September 19th through 23rd, 2021 in Orlando, Florida. All right, Matt, this was a very interesting episode. And I thought what stood out quite a bit was this conversation of how as engineers, structural engineers specifically, need to be thinking about more than just your project, but how it fits into the community overall. I thought that was interesting, and it seems to be a bit of a running theme these days. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, we're not just engineers. We have to think more about how our work impacts not just us, but the industry and the community. It was an interesting conversation. It's something that I think, like we talk about throughout this episode, it's not necessarily a habit or it's not necessarily something that is easy because in school, you're not in that kind of atmosphere. You're mostly doing the calculations in the projects, right? You're not looking at it globally all the time. Yep. And I think that's a good point because, yeah, back in school, you know, it's, it's always, you're so focused on the calcs, but 
you don't see what you're actually doing for the community and, and what your end product is. And I think that's important because it, it kind of gives you a, a better perspective of why you're doing the engineering in the first place. Let me just tell you a little bit about our guest before we jump into the interview. As mentioned before, Dr. Therese McAllister is the Community Resilience Group Leader and Program Manager in the Materials and Structural Systems Research Division of the Engineering Laboratory at NIST. She is the Federal Program Officer for the NIST-funded Center of Excellence, Center for Risk-Based Community Resilience Planning, led by Colorado State University. She serves on standards and technical committees of the American Society of Civil Engineers and the International Code Council. Dr. McAllister is a registered professional engineer in Maryland and an ASCE Structural Engineering Institute fellow. She also currently conducts research on community resilience with a focus on the integrated performance of physical infrastructure systems, which she talks a lot about in the episode, and interdependencies with social and economic systems. She has expertise in structural reliability, risk assessment, and failure analysis of buildings and infrastructure systems. She conducted detailed studies of the World Trade Center disaster, Hurricane Katrina flooding in New Orleans, and Hurricane Sandy flood effects on infrastructure systems. Prior to joining NIST, she conducted forensic studies of structural failures. All right, I think you're going to like this one. Let's jump in with Dr. Therese McAllister. All right, now we're excited to welcome Dr. Therese McAllister to the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Terry is the Community Resilience Group Leader and Program Manager in the Materials and Structural Systems Research Division of the Engineering Laboratory at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Just to get started off here, before we jump into kind of what NIST does, and we're going to talk, of course, about community resilience, you have a very impressive career background. You're trained as a structural engineer, and you're doing great things now, which we're going to get into here. You have a very impressive bio, which we touched on in the intro of the show. But if someone were to cross paths with you in the hallway, or they got into the elevator with you, and they asked you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? What I do is look to the future through the research that we do here at NIST. And I have done practice in engineering, but I always find myself coming back, wanting to do research, uh, trying to move things forward and improve things for structural engineering as as well as uh, communities and, and our country. I would focus on those areas. NIST. Let's talk about NIST. We mentioned it there in your introduction. This organization that I think a lot of people in the structural world know. What does NIST do? NIST has a mission to promote innovation and industrial competitiveness for our country. And they do that by advancing measurement science, standards, and technology. And this was established by Congress in 1901 as a a national need for our country. And we address measurement science through things like metrics and models and uh, developing knowledge for those uh, metrics and models. I think an important aspect to understand is that we are a non-regulatory agency in the Department of Commerce. So unlike some of the other federal agencies, we don't have a regulatory authority, so we are allowed to collaborate with industry, and that allows us to work closely with practitioners. 
We're going to talk about community resilience, of course. How does that program fit into NIST's mission? So community resilience, as we all know, is an emerging area. Uh, There's a lot of interest in it. Everybody recognizes the need, but there's not a lot of science-based tools or metrics out there to guide community resilience. So NIST is taken uh, a vested interest in addressing the need for metrics and models and looking at the performance of the built environment, buildings as well as the infrastructure system, and taking it further to not only are they just safe for their performance, for life safety, but also will they be functional after an event or soon after design hazard events. NIST has a long history of working with uh, buildings and looking at their performance after hazard events, and we've been leveraging that information to help us address this look to uh, improving their performance in in a broader way. So Terry, what is community resilience? What's the the definition of it for NIST? Let me start with the definition of resilience that we use, and this is generally used by federal agencies. Uh, Resilience is the ability to prepare for and adapt to changing conditions as well as to withstand and recover rapidly from disruptions, which uh, typically are hazard events, but it could be broader than that. I think engineers to date have largely focused on preparing for and withstanding hazard events, but we all know adapting to changing conditions, you know, with things like sea level rise is a new challenge. And this issue of how do we plan for recovery is certainly a, a new area that there's very little science or technology in. So we've taken that resilience perspective and decided to apply it at the community scale because communities are where decisions are made about what codes are going to be adopted, what type of uh, guidelines are going to enforce, uh, what type of uh, programs that they're going to follow. So community resilience then doesn't look at individual buildings or systems. It looks at them as an integrated system. They should all function together. So we are modeling them as uh, an integrated system of systems and looking at how well they perform at the community scale. That's pretty interesting just because I know as structural engineers, we pretty much take a look at one building at a time, but during a disaster such as a fire or an earthquake, if a lot of those buildings are damaged, I mean, I've seen some fires in California recently where entire communities have been pretty much gone just because not just the buildings, but the entire community, but they do function as one, as you're saying. So Who's addressing resilience in structural design now? So we are seeing work actively taking place quite a bit for critical facilities. Um, We all think about hospitals, 911 call centers, data centers that have cloud computing uh, facilities, and even schools are starting to design uh, for resilience, as well as uh, some roadway systems and water systems. So Los Angeles and some of the work they've done um, recently highlighted that their water systems needed to be more resilient, for instance, as well as some of the buildings that they were looking at. Retrofit's a really important issue as well. You know, we all know that any community has a range of conditions from buildings that may be 100 years old and systems as well as brand new, uh, recently constructed to the, the best codes that are available. 
we're always going to have this challenge of, do we have a critical function in a building that will not perform as we want it to? Can we retrofit it to sufficient conditions that it, it will be adequate? Or do we need to maybe move that facility to a building better suited for the performance that's being looked for? It is an interesting topic. We, Matt and I were both at the ASCE Structures Congress, the SEI's annual event, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And walking around the floor there, I did some podcast interviews and the idea of community resilience came up over and over. In fact, episode two of this podcast is kind of a summary of some of those interviews. And one of the interviews was with Dr. Elena Sutley at the University of Kansas. She's a researcher in the NIST-funded Center for Risk-Based Community Resilience Planning. And she talked about it a lot. And it just kept coming up. Like everywhere I went around the conference floor, I heard the words community resilience. And why is community resilience so important to structural engineers? Community resilience represents, I think, the next evolution of design for structural engineers. There's always things that can be improved in our current practice, and and that's being worked on through codes and standards and best practices. But community resilience provides this new perspective that really brings, I think, fresh air into the thought process. Now we're looking at a building and saying, okay, if we design it to code, will it really be able to meet the function that one, the owner intends for it to meet, and two, that the community at large expects, knowing that it's been designed to our recent codes and standards. And when we go back and and look at our codes and standards, um, we're starting to see words like functionality and recovery are starting to be considered because it's bringing another layer of opportunity for structural engineers to open up their design practice beyond providing uh, you know, what sometimes is referred to as commodity engineering or just providing the structural frame. This will now provide more of a platform for added value to the design team and really thinking through how to deliver the best building given what the demands and the uh, expectations of the owner as well as the public are. Another big topic, of course, that we hear about all the time, we've talked about on the podcast, is performance-based design. How do the two intersect or overlap performance-based design and community resilience? Performance-based design allows for designs that are not well-established in the codes and standards, and it's often a first step before something is understood enough and there's enough experience with it that it can be considered well-understood enough to be part of codes and standards. To do performance-based design, you have to establish performance goals, performance objectives, acceptance criteria, and, you know, that's part of what NIST is trying to help address. How do we determine what appropriate goals, objectives, and and performance criteria are for buildings or other structural systems that are trying to meet these goals that, that aren't clearly defined right now? That's really interesting. It's because I think what you touched upon was the commoditization of structural engineering. And yeah, I think that's something that I hear a lot in the industry too. What it typically goes is a building owner wants a building and they just hire a structural engineer without really getting to the discussion of, hey, how do you want this building to, do you want it to be functional after an earthquake or do you want it to be severely damaged during an earthquake and then you have to repair it? So I think a lot of people don't really understand 
what the building code standard is now for buildings. So at least here in California, during an earthquake, you know, your buildings are designed to be pretty much severely damaged during an earthquake. And what, at least with this resiliency program, I think it, it explains more about what the potential of buildings and structural engineers can do to add more value to the building design and to the design team. So I think that's a really great way to, to increase the value of structural engineers along with performance-based design. To Matt's point, you're giving the experts some flexibility in they are experts. Things are changing. The environment's changing. The climate's changing. And we need to be able to consider cities as whole systems, right? And if older codes maybe haven't necessarily been updated for that yet because things are changing, right? The codes can't be updated like all the time. You're giving the experts the ability to say, hey, I've done this enough and we know what's going on with some of these changes to the environment. We need to look at things in this way, which I think is great. And that's why I think that these two topics of community resilience and performance-based design are, you know, critical, I think, in all aspects of civil engineering or engineering, but especially in structural engineering with the complex systems that are kind of created on a day-to-day basis. So with that, all that being said, Terry, how can community resilience be implemented by structural engineers? I mean, it's one thing to have these conversations and there's a lot of good information out there on these different things. While, while some of it is new, of course, in developing and there's research going on, how can structural engineers start to implement some of these things? One of the first things is to recognize that we have addressed it to some degree in our current practice with the risk categories that we use uh, to identify the intended performance level of a building. However, as we said before, um, that's primarily focused on structural stability or you know, minimizing the probability of collapse with some increased capacity if, if something is, say, a risk category four versus a risk category two. Another concept that uh, community resilience brings in is this idea of healthcare services as an example. So we all immediately think of a hospital, but for a community, say, after an earthquake or a hurricane where there's extensive damage, wants its citizens and residents to have health care. It needs pharmacies, it needs clinics, it needs doctor's offices, it needs other emergency care centers, as well as hospitals. Almost all those systems that I listed are designed as risk category two structures rather than risk category four. So this really raises the question of, Are we really going to be able to provide healthcare in our community after an event or not? And so this is the opportunity for engineers uh, to talk with their clients about the intended purpose of their building. And this is one of the challenges, and, and we've heard this quite a bit. A lot of buildings are privately owned if they're not government facilities, and a lot of uh, owners are looking at short-term benefits, not long-term benefits. One of the things we're trying to characterize is long-term benefits, um, a facility that remains open and remains functional, much more cost-effective than one that gets damaged and has a lot of repair and retrofit or maybe even demolition that might have to take place. It's recognizing these roles and opening up that discussion and then having performance-based design as a tool to help uh, show how some of these things might be enabled or how structural engineers can start to work along this path. Let me ask this question just again, just to put an example into play, because I know some of this stuff can be new for our listeners. The risk category of buildings, let's say, one through four, 
four being structures that could pose a real substantial hazard to the community, et cetera. I guess maybe like a hospital, like you said. And then as you go lower down, you know, more kind of typical buildings or whatever the case may be. But anyway, just thinking an example purposes here, if there's a, a location where they're maybe doing some planning and they're going to be building some new buildings, if they identify climate as an issue in terms of resilience in this locale, let's say, because there was maybe a lot of hurricanes in the past or whatever the case may be, would it be considered performance-based design if they decided to design some buildings at a higher risk category than they were listed at in the code? Is that an example? I'm just trying to give some real examples here. I don't think that would necessarily be so. If, if it's typically a risk category two structure, but everyone agrees to design it as a risk category three or even a four, that's well established within the codes and standards. That potentially could have a lot less discussion around functionality and and recovery because we're going to go ahead and follow, in that case, uh, established practices. I think it's when you start adding other features that are wanted beyond what's in the codes and standards that uh, we turn to performance-based design uh, to try to address those. And that's clear. And I, I asked that question just because we've gotten some questions just from our first couple of episodes. Some of, especially younger and new structural engineers out there that are still trying to wrap their heads around some of these things. Not all these things can be taught, of course, in the undergraduate curriculum because there's only so many things that can be kind of built into it. But that is helpful and it is helpful to understand kind of community resilience, performance-based design, where the overlap is and, and what are some of the things that can be done right now to implement. I had a question too. So is it like what you're kind of saying, Terry? So if you have a what you were mentioning with the privately owned institutions or buildings, let's say you had a medical clinic, if that was designed for, let's say, your typical risk category two, during an earthquake, if that medical clinic was supposed to provide help to, you know, the community, I mean, if that building's damaged and severely damaged, its use in the community is pretty much gone. Is that, it looks like that's something that as a structural engineer, we could bring up to, let's say, for if we're doing that for the building owner, kind of bringing that up where it's, if this building's use is to provide medical help to the community, do you want to make your building a little more resilient? Is that something that comes up a lot or is that something that we should be doing as structural engineers? I think owners that understand that if they lose the ability to operate on a day-to-day basis, uh, so, you know, some of the examples we gave earlier, like data centers, are looking for this type of capability, but others that consider themselves just normal construction wouldn't necessarily think of it. So it it is a good opportunity to bring it up. Just another thought to bring some more context to this. If you're a small community, and let's just say that's the only clinic that provides uh, diabetes or cancer care, it may take on larger importance than if you're in a larger community where there's five of them. You know, at that point, it might become part of a discussion too. Maybe the community needs to decide that at least one or two of these clinics need to be functional, but they won't require it of all of them. Not everything can be done at the structural engineer level. Some of this would have to be done at the community level, recognizing this concept of how this health system will be functional after an event. And again, that goes back to what Terry talked about when we started this conversation, which is looking at things as systems and not just considering the building itself, understanding the entire scenario, 
everything around it. And that's, I think, important, really important for us as engineers. But of course, you know, involves people, other stakeholders as well to get involved in that decision. And actually, we did have good conversations with Ronald Hamburger and Evan Reese back on episode number three, when we we're talking about base isolation and why that maybe is or isn't used. And it kind of got into the same things, Matt, in terms of the owner in some of these buildings, the owner may be someone that's just building it and then selling it and they're not going to be around for the long term. So their interests may be different than the engineer, the architect, of course, or the community stakeholders that are going to be sitting around the table saying, you know, you may not be interested in the building long term because you're not going to be around long term, but we are and we need to talk about that and, and think about that. And I think maybe that all has to factor in, but it just shows that there's a lot of moving parts in this industry in terms of the owner, what that scenario is, the community, and many other things that have to be considered. So again, which just always gets back to engineering isn't just all calculations. There's many different facets of these jobs because we're so connected to the community, which I think makes it such a challenging job. And there's so much that we we're driving in terms of our projects, which just makes it very interesting. Terry, before we end up this segment, I just want to ask you, two kind of quick questions that go together in terms of the structural engineering industry. So from your seat and where you sit and what you work on on a daily basis, what's the most exciting thing right now in the structural engineering industry to you? I'm seeing a lot of advancement in performance-based design. We know that the practice seismic engineers have had performance-based design guidelines for a while. Some wind guidelines are under development. And I think there's interest in uh, performance-based design in a number of areas across the Structural Engineering Institute. And I think this is part of this new thinking of let's do more than just size of a structural frame. And, and I'm not minimizing that. There's some significant challenges, skills, and knowledge needed to do that and do that well. But I think we're starting to see a broadening of what structural engineering can mean in addition to that. And how about on the flip side, from where you're sitting and things you look at on a daily basis and all the people you talk with, what is something that maybe worries you a little bit about the structural engineering industry or something that concerns you a bit that you think we need to keep an eye on? That's an interesting question. I would say that becoming too narrowly focused is potentially a challenge because, of course, as structural engineers, we need to be very knowledgeable and very well informed. But have, and the training challenges are large, I know, in the curriculums, but I think an understanding as well of social institutions, economics, some of these other things that drive the decisions that owners and communities make relative to their buildings and what's needed in their communities, having more training in those areas would really help structural engineers um, talking with urban planners and architects. So having that T-shaped model, I've heard others refer to, where you have your depth in structural engineering, but you also have adequate breadth in other areas that touch on structural engineering, I think is something that's very important and you know we should promote as a profession. Based on our conversation today and kind of just building off of what you just said, I would think too that that is certainly a concern, right? We need to be engineers and structural engineers specifically need to kind of be educated on some of the other components of these projects to help with these decisions. But also, I think just the whole idea of thinking more about the entire system, and not just the project you're working on, would be something 
you know, just myself also who practice as an engineer, we tend to be very project driven, which is understandable. But the more we think about resiliency and the climate and things that are changing, I think having that system view, looking at the whole community is something that is important and could be a little bit of a cause for concern just because we, I feel like we need to do a better job developing that habit now. Yeah, exactly. Just to chime in a little bit, especially as a structural engineer, it's very easy to get sucked into that steel beam calculation and forget about everything else, which is good. Yeah, you're saying it's great just being there and being really good at what you do, but it is very important to be more knowledgeable about how that structure and how what you're doing affects not just the building, but the owner and the community. So I think that's a very good point. Terry's going to stick with us. We're going to come back in a minute for our Elastic Modulus segment, and we're going to ask her a career-related question. So stick around for that. All right, now it's time for our Elastic Modulus segment of the show. The elastic modulus is a quantity that measures an object or substance's resistance to being deformed elastically when a stress is applied to it. And in this segment of the show, we like to ask our guests about a time in their career where maybe they bent a little, but they didn't break, or they had to overcome a big challenge or make a big decision. Now, before we do that with Terry, I do want to take a minute to recognize our sponsor for this episode, CSI. CSI produces five primary software packages. SAP 2000, CSI Bridge, ETABS, Safe, and Perform 3D. Each of these programs offers unique capabilities and tools that are tailored to different types of structures and problems, allowing users to find just the right solution for their work. SAP 2000 is intended for use on civil structures such as dams, communication towers, stadiums, industrial plants, and buildings. CSI Bridge offers powerful parametric design of concrete and steel bridges. ETABS has been developed specifically for multi-story commercial and residential building structures, such as office towers, apartments, and hospitals. The SAFE system provides an efficient and powerful program for the analysis and design of concrete slabs and foundations, with or without post-tensioning. Perform 3D is a highly focused non-linear tool offering powerful performance-based design capabilities. With CSI products, you can be confident that you have the finest structural engineering software available backed by a company with an unmatched record of innovation and an unrivaled commitment to meet the ever-evolving needs of the profession. You can learn more about them at www.csiamerica.com. All right, so we're here with Dr. McAllister from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So Terry, we've enjoyed the conversation, and now we have one more question here in our Elastic Modulus segment related to your career. You've had an established career. We've kind of gone through some of that here. But we just want to know if there was a time in your career where you either faced a challenge or a big decision and how you dealt with that and overcame it or, or made a decision that was difficult. That's a really interesting question. So I think one of the big challenges for me was when I decided to change direction in my career. My initial training was as an ocean engineer and for reasons of family and, and job opportunities and end interest, I ended up deciding I wanted to go more in the direction of structural engineering. And this required me to go back to school. And uh, it was a big change and a big challenge. Since then, I've 
change direction once or twice in my career. It seems to happen about every 10 years or so, maybe not as dramatically as that, but in the areas that I've been working in or conducting research. And I bring this up because a lot of times when I talk with young professionals, they're very concerned about getting locked into a direction uh, early in their career. And some people do, and they're very happy with the choice they make, and they're very good at it. But I'm here to say as an example that decisions you make today will inform your future, but they by no means lock you in, and uh, that you should just evaluate opportunities as they come up and not feel like you're locking yourself into one direction, especially early in your career. That's great. And in fact, what I like about what you said there, Terry, is I think a lot of times we face these career decisions and we make them out to be much bigger than they really are. Like I've talked with a lot of engineers that either they get frozen on these decisions, they get into this paralysis by analysis, right? They're analyzing everything like almost like it's a structural beam and they just don't make a decision. And so I've read some books in the past, one of them being the four-hour work week, which I enjoyed, which I took out of it was one of his recommendations was like, you can always ask yourself, like, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? And to Terry's point, like a lot of times while your decisions will inform your future, as engineers, we're speaking of resilience. I mean, we are resilient because we have the great educational background. We have a lot of experience with different projects and different people. So odds are, if we get knocked down in our career, if we happen to make a quote unquote wrong decision, and you know, you're not happy with the decision you made, you can turn it around. I mean, you most likely have the knowledge to turn it around. You have the contacts to turn it around. So building off of what Terry said there, don't be afraid to make decisions, even if you feel like you're taking a little bit of risk in your career, because if you try a different field and you don't like it, you can probably go back. In fact, I just helped an engineer who was in the Southern United States working in one discipline of civil engineering. She kind of said to me, listen, I want to be working in a different discipline and I want to be on the West Coast. And she said, I know that that's a big change and I don't know if it's really possible, but I don't try. And so I worked with her a little bit and she ended up getting a great job in, uh, out in California doing what she wanted to do. And you know what? If it doesn't work out, she can go revert back. So I think the message there is a good one. It's just be flexible and don't think that it's ever too late to kind of make a change or make a different decision. Any thoughts on that, Matt? No, I think that's like you're saying, kind of, especially as engineers, because I think you know, we have the technical background and if you already start working, hopefully you can develop all the soft skills and maybe some management skills. And it's really transferable to any industry. We, as engineers, we're problem solvers and what industry doesn't need problem solvers. So don't just coop yourself up and just kind of like uh, pigeonholing yourself into, I'm only a civil engineer or water engineer there's a lot of skills that we have as engineers that we can take to a lot of different areas in, in the industry. All right, Terry. Well, listen, we know you're a very busy professional and we know the community is really excited about the work you're doing because quite a few people told us that we needed to contact you and have you come on the podcast. So we appreciate you taking the time and we'll definitely stay in touch with you. And thank you so much for sharing the knowledge and some of the work that you're doing with the community. Thank you, Anthony and Matthew. It's been my pleasure. We hope that you enjoyed our episode today and our conversation with Dr. Therese McAllister from NIST. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. 
And you can also find us on iTunes, which has been rebranded as Apple Podcasts. Just look for the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, and you can leave a review if you'd like to, which is helpful for us. Or you just subscribe so that you make sure that you get push notifications when we publish new episodes, and we've got some good ones coming up for you. So until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering career endeavors. Music.